Hi there. I hope you're enjoying your online church experience today. My name's James Wells and I attend the 5pm service with my lovely family. At the moment we're enjoying it from Alambie Road. I'm going to bring you the Bible reading today from the Corso Alleyway, which is exciting. The reading's from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. I'll just give you a chance to find that in your lounge room Bibles. 1 Peter, chapter 1, 1 to 12. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the suffering of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of these things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Well, hello, my name's Scott. I'm one of the ministers from St. Matthews. And if you could keep the Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 1, that'll be very helpful to me as we refer to it throughout. Now, when Carol and my wife and I go away on holidays or even just away for a day trip or find ourselves anywhere away from home, we like to walk the streets. Uh, we figure it's the best way to get to know an area. We like looking at the houses in the streets. We notice, pay attention to the architecture. And I suspect that lots of you will do that as well. And young ones, you might think it's a ridiculously lame thing to do, but I guarantee you that at some stage in your life, you will do the exact same thing when you've run out of things to talk about with your friends and lovers. So we walk and we look, and because you typically go away to places that are nice, uh, deep down I think we are imagining what it would be like to live there. We say things like, wow, imagine what the view is like from up there, or oh, boy, doesn't it look super cute and cosy in there? And I guess we're basically daydreaming about what life would be like in houses that we could never ever afford. I think it's pretty harmless. It um, uh, doesn't make us envious or begrudging or ungrateful. It's just a little fantasy, some harmless 
daydreaming. But there is something about our homes that make us feel safe, and that's really what they're there for. Houses protect us from the outside elements, and when you put kind and decent people inside them, they become homes that protect us from all kinds of dangers and anxieties and insecurities that life outside brings. And so homes are very important to us. And yet today we tune into a message from the Apostle Peter to a bunch of Christians scattered across the Roman Empire in which he clearly says that as Christians, we're not at home here in this world. We might reside here, but we're not at home here. We might live here, but we won't always be comfortable here. We really belong in heaven and to heaven. And so for as long as we stand here upon this earth, we are away from home. And that, of course, raises natural questions like, why would we praise God when we face difficulties as foreigners or scattered strangers or temporary residents here? I mean, how can you have joy when you're grieved by trials and sorrows of living here? How, in fact, can you have hope away from your heavenly home? Well, that's what the book of 1 Peter is all about, hope away from home. And we're going to see that in our opening passage today. You wonder what the view is like from in there? Well, let's have a look together. The first thing we're going to see is that God has chosen us to be exiles from verse 1 and 2. He's personally chosen us to be foreigners, strangers, exiles. And in fact, that's what we see in verse 1. Let's read it together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see, God has chosen Christians to be exiles. And you might even say, that's a three-word sermon, God's elect exiles. Of course, that might seem like a bit of a contradiction. You've been chosen by God. That's what elect means, and yet you're in exile. So you've been chosen to not belong, to be a temporary resident in a foreign place, to be a sojourner. The word exile doesn't imply that you've been forced out of your homeland violently. It doesn't mean that you're a complete stranger, entirely unknown to your neighbours on earth. But it just means as Christians, our earthly residence here is temporary. We've been chosen by God to inhabit his eternal heavenly kingdom, which means we don't really belong here. We're away from home. And that was certainly true of Peter's first readers, scattered across the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, places situated along a known trade route in what was then called Asia Minor or what we would know as modern day Turkey. And Peter's readers likely consisted of Jewish Christians as well as Gentile converts. Peter might have evangelised some of them himself. Others might have been scattered by persecution from Israel, like you read about in Acts. They might have even been descended from Jews who'd been scattered from Israel in much earlier exiles. So they were a mixed audience, and they certainly had a mixed life experience. When you read the book, it doesn't sound like they're experiencing the worst sort of terror, like what happened under Nero in AD 64, but they weren't having a walk in the park either. And so their situation is actually quite similar to ours. We may not be scattered right across an empire, but we're scattered at least in the sense of not being able to fully gather as we've done previously. 
And that's going to be something we'll need to work at during this term. And in any case, we find ourselves just a, a little on the margins of popular opinion and society. There's an edge to our existence here, or perhaps there should be an edge, because we're not quite at home here. Well, the Apostle Peter wants us to know that is no mere accident. We've been personally chosen by God for this kind of life. We are his elect. It's by his foreknowledge that we find ourselves as his people. I mean, we quite legitimately sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. But even more importantly, Peter says, God has decided that in your favour, that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, sanctifying us, verse 2, that is making us more like Jesus as he moves our hearts to obey him, is similarly not mere accident that our lives here, away from home, are to be lived for obedience to Jesus, no mere accident, that we are sprinkled by his blood, that is covered by his gracious forgiveness whenever we falter or sin is no mere accident. And even when we experience griefs because of sorrows and trials, that's not random, it's not meaningless, it's not accidental. Three-word sermon, God's elect exiles. We are not at home. But that's not an accident either. And so grace and peace are indeed ours in abundance. Well, as Peter moves beyond that uh, initial comforting greeting, we discover yet another reason for hope away from home. God has birthed us into a living hope and an unspoilable inheritance. And I think we ought to read together verses 3 and 4 again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So God has birthed us into a living hope and an unspoilable inheritance. And I know that unspoilable is not a real word, and I realise that it sounds clunky to say that God has birthed us into something, but our text is saying more than just God has given us living hope. It says he has birthed us or born us or reborn us into this hope. He's personally involved. Uh, it's the difference between giving birth to a child and giving a present to a child. Now, both of those are great but one of them is just a little more personally involved than the other. So he's birthed us into a living hope. Well, what does he mean by living hope? For starters, it's not a dead hope. It's not a false hope. It's not even a hopeful hope, you know, a kind of probable hope. It's a living hope that there is life beyond this world, that we will exist beyond the bounds of an earthly grave, that we will raise or rise from the travails of virus and sickness and recession and poverty and depression and anxiety and deep disappointment and unrelenting frustration and sadness to a glorious bodily future. We will experience perfection in our maker's presence. And the reason why it's a living hope and a certain hope is that someone has already made that passage. The Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from his own earthly grave, never to die again, and sits evermore in perfection in the presence of his heavenly Father. That's the hope we have. It's a living hope. And on account of God's great mercy, we are reborn into it, this living hope. 
Friend, can I ask you, do you know it? Reports suggest that rich American families have got a unique habit of burning through massive amounts of cash. Time magazine found that 70% of wealthy families, I mean really wealthy families, lose their wealth by the second generation and almost all have squandered it by the third generation. The Washington Post recently reported that 90% of wealthy American parents don't plan to tell their kids what they're going to inherit. It's just too risky. And here's another interesting number for you. It takes the average recipient of an inheritance 19 days until they buy a new, and I guess that means a new and expensive car. There are many ways to spoil an inheritance, but most of us are going to take less than three weeks to blow big dollars on a new car. Well, that's exactly what I would do. How uncreative and cliched we are. There, there are actually so many ways to spoil an inheritance. Uh, in the Old Testament, the people of God, they looked forward to an inheritance in the land of Canaan. You know, their own little piece of the promised land. And of course, that was dashed when they were carted off into Assyrian or Babylonian exile, or were otherwise under the rule of foreigners in their own land. Uh, in the Gospels, Jesus tells us that moths and uh, rust threaten an inheritance and that thieves can steal it. And apart from your children's inability to resist the lure of a new and expensive car, these days you might think it's your parents' extravagant holiday spending that is a threat to your inheritance. There are a lot of ways you can spoil an inheritance. But the Apostle Peter reminds the Christian that the inheritance God has borne us into is a share in the eternal city of God. That is a portion of heaven with all its blessings. It's imperishable. Now, that is a word that the New Testament only uses to describe God himself and the resurrection bodies that we're looking forward to. It's imperishable. It's undefiled by sin. It's unfading in its glory and it's kept in heaven for us so that thieves, moths, rust, overspending parents and entitled children cannot blow it. It is as safe as safe can be. And that is a reason for hope while we live here away from home. And so God has granted or chosen all those who believe to be temporary residents here, elect exiles, looking forward to inhabiting his great heavenly kingdom, which is our real home. Furthermore, he's birthed us uh, into a living hope and an unspoilable inheritance. But thirdly for today, God has granted us a wonderful salvation. And look, this obviously overlaps things that we've already spoken of, but I'd like to give you a number of reasons why this salvation is so wonderful. It is wonderful in the sense that it was predicted in the past by the prophets, verse 10, who painstakingly investigated their own predictions and prophecies given by God, who painstakingly searched through the other scriptures that were available to them, who painstakingly screened even the events of their own times to discern whether the predictions about the Messiah would be fulfilled in their own days. The salvation that is available in Christ Jesus is so great that not only did the prophets foretell it in the centuries past, they intently hoped that all which they had predicted might have come, through, come true in their own day. And that wasn't to be for them, but it is for us. 
This salvation is wonderful because the Apostle Peter can say that we experience it not only as a past decision. You remember that moment you first believed that Jesus was your Lord and Saviour and you committed your life to him. But it's also a present experience. If you look very closely at verse 9, you can see it describes salvation in the present tense. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Can you see it's described there in a present and continuous sense? We've not only received salvation in a past moment, we are receiving it as a present and ongoing experience. Now, how can that be? I take it that the verse before is a, a real help, verse 8. How are we receiving salvation? Well, because we love Jesus right now, in this very moment. Though we haven't seen him, we love him. And though we still yet don't see him, we believe in him and we're filled with great joy in our believing. What is salvation if it's at least partly not being in right relationship with Jesus right now? Of course, we get forgiveness of sins and our shortcomings, uh, the removal of our guilt and shame. That's sometimes called the, the forensic or the kind of the transactional side of salvation. But there's also a relational side to salvation in which we're in right and open relationship with Jesus that can be summarized by saying we have not seen him, at least not with our eyes, and yet we love him and we believe him and we rejoice in him. And this present dimension of salvation that we receive on an ongoing basis each day is so great that suffering doesn't diminish it. Suffering strengthens it. It strengthens our faith. It hardens our resolve. It purifies our love for him. It proves our genuineness. As I understand it, there are three main ways you can purify gold. You can use acid, you can use electricity, you can use fire. Using acid, like nitric acid, hydrochloric acid, to create a purifying solution, that's the simplest way to remove impurities from the gold, but it's, it's not very sexy, is it? If you've got plenty of cash already, you might use uh, the expensive Huowil process, which I'm sure I've mispronounced, and that passes an electric current through the gold, which is sitting in a solution. Um, you, you sort of zap it, I guess, until all the impurities fall off. But this method wasn't around in Peter's day. So when the Apostle Peter thinks about refining gold, he naturally jumps to the fire solution, which requires you to stick your gold in a crucible into a furnace uh, that can handle 1,000 degrees Celsius. And it just kind of burns off all the impurities. It's way sexier than acid, and it's a lot cheaper than zapping it with electricity. And so the Apostle Peter says that our sufferings are like a purification process. It's like being in the furnace. It doesn't destroy our faith. It makes it purer. Our sufferings prove our faith, he says. They demonstrate that our faith is genuine. And this salvation is so wonderful that trials of all kinds don't diminish it. Rather, they strengthen, refine, purify and prove our faith. So that our salvation and our love for Jesus is intensified which gives us joy despite our grief, and it gives God great glory and praise. So friends, it's a great salvation, centred on Christ, predicted by the prophets, believed upon by us, 
presently experienced in our love for Jesus, strengthened and purified rather than diminished by our pain. And finally, it will come in its completeness. Verse 4, in the last time, verse 7, when Jesus appears or is revealed at his return, when all the blessings of the age to come rush in upon us, when our bodies will be raised from dysfunction and decay into glory, when we will take hold of our heavenly inheritance, when the sting of our sorrows will be but a, a distant and shadowy memory, when the living hope will become redundant because we will grasp hold of all for which we had hoped, when we will no longer be away from home because we will take up residence in our heavenly home and when we'll see Jesus with our own eyes and we will love him all the more for it. It's a wonderful salvation. Now maybe it's easy to wax lyrical about this living hope and this unspoilable inheritance and this great salvation in a kind of abstract way. And you might be thinking to yourself, boy, he goes on about it a bit, doesn't he? Maybe you think it sounds a little like the way I might walk through a new town checking out the houses. Bit of harmless fun, bit of daydreaming is all, just a fantasy, but without much connection to the real world. So what difference does what Peter says make to life here while we are away from home? I wonder if it firstly causes us to check our relationship to life on this planet. Uh, if you're disturbed, this might bring you comfort. And if you're overly comfortable, it might disturb you. What I mean is that if you just sense your Christian devotion causes you discomfort as you make your way through this world, as you interact lovingly and respectfully with your fellow citizens, if you ever sense edginess or that you're kind of at the, the margins of your family or social circle or your network of colleagues and uh, friends, customers, whatever, because you love Jesus, this passage actually makes sense of that feeling. It effectively says, well, that's to be expected. You are an elect exile after all. It's going to feel uncomfortable from time to time, if not most of the time. You know you're not meant to settle down here. You're a temporary resident. You're not permanently stationed here. It makes sense of that. And I guess the reverse is equally true. If you really feel quite comfortable, quite at home here, you never sense that edginess. Uh, you're at the centre of your social networks, friends, family, colleagues, whatever, and you don't often cop blowback or ridicule or snide remarks or hostility, could it be the case that you, you never mix with people who are believers? Could it be the case that you're not that open about your love for Jesus? Could it be the case that you're not behaving in a distinctly Christian way? Could it be that you're comfortable and you ought to be disturbed? Or is it the other way around that you're disturbed and you really ought to be comforted by knowing that we are away from home, elect exiles, as it were? I wonder also if this passage suggests that joy should be an enduring feature of our Christian lives. And boy, do I need to hear this because I find it so easy to moan and complain and to resent and be frustrated. In a chapter 
and a book that's addressed to temporary residents, sojourners through this earthly life. Did it strike you how often you hear the words joy and praise? I mean, just scan your way through our passage. You see praise there in verse 3 and then again in verse 7. You see joy there in verse 6 and then again in verse 8. I wonder if it struck you how incredibly privileged we are to be living on this side of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, to be recipients of gospel preaching rather than just prophets' predictions, to live in an age where we do indeed know the time and the circumstances of the sufferings and glories of the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if in our undue attachment to the things of this world we forget or underestimate the great privilege it is to live in this gospel age. I wonder if oftentimes when we grumble or resent that our focus is too squarely on the, the little while we have to suffer rather than our living hope and our safeguarded inheritance, which can never spoil. And then I wonder, therefore, if we miss opportunities for our faith to be refined and proved genuine, and that this in turn somehow dulls our love of Jesus, perhaps just taking an edge off the shine. When the last verse, verse 12, talks about angels longing to look into these things, at least part of what the angels are looking for, I, I take it, is how our living hope and our refined faith plays out in our daily lives. I don't think they're just interested in abstract theology. They're interested in the difference that it makes at ground level and whether it brings forth in us greater joy, greater praise for God, greater gratitude to him for all that he has done for us in Christ Jesus. If an angel were to look at you, would it detect an intense confidence in life to come that wells up in joy? Well, that's a probing question to ponder, isn't it? Friends, as we finish, God has been so good to us, hasn't he? He's chosen us to be his elect exiles. He's birthed us into a living hope and a sure inheritance, and he has supplied us with a wonderful salvation. So let us praise God, and let us love his son Jesus, and let us live in hope, and let even the angels look upon it all within us. Amen.